my name's Justin McClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Turkish cinema. And this is the last in our four-week international cinema club oh thank uh, god <laughs> we've had some of the lowest listener numbers <laughs> of any episodes that we've ever done well but, i i've enjoyed it yeah i think that we um did the work and we did the right thing <laughs> that we can point to this month when we do yet another episode on a poverty row filmmaker <laughs> but you know i think i think we've made good discoveries this month mm-hmm. i have at yeah. least and so we decided when we were going to talk about this topic that we wanted something a little bit more trashy so i picked the actor Janate. Arkin, who is most famous for appearing in Turkish Star Wars. Now, a lot of people will be listening to this and say, Turkish Star Wars, what's that? Mm -hmm. It is exactly what it sounds like, a low-budget Turkish ripoff of Star Wars. Well, ripoff of Star Wars, I mean, it steals from Star Wars, whole scenes. It sort of gets the aesthetic, Mm -hmm. including stock footage. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, Turkish ripoff movies, I sort of fell in love with them, you know, early in university i've talked about that wonderful video store suspect video rest in peace a a bunch of times on this podcast but it was a real mind-blowing experience to go into that store and they'd have like the superhero section and you'd be looking through the superhero section and it'd be like filipino batman (laughs) three dev adam three three dev adam perfect example that is a turkish movie featuring Captain America, Spider-Man, and the Mexican wrestler El Santo. So, but it's a rip-off of yeah, it's a rip-off of El Santo and there were multiple El Santo rip-offs. And Spider-Man doesn't really look like Spider-Man. No. He's, he's got a spider on his outfit. <laughs> yes. Uh, but his colors are off. Captain America looks like Captain America. Yeah, the suit's a little too baggy. Uh, you forgot to mention that Spider-Man also has a mustache in the movie. And he's a villain. He's a villain who at one point takes like gerbils and puts them up against a woman's private parts and is like, "Yes, eat her." Eat Oh, man. So it's definitely like, I don't want to say it's a loss in translation thing, because they know what they're doing, but they're using the iconography that's very well known. Story goes that there are no copyright laws, especially at this time in Turkey. So there was no one saying, no, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. And I had often wondered about that, because these Turkish exploitation movies, they're sort of legendary in cult circles, but almost none of them have had official U.S. releases. This is the thing that I found kind of shocking about doing research into this actor was is that he has made, according to IMDb, over 300 credits. And I could find remnants over the vast internet of like, I don't know, 100 of his films. Probably a lot of them are lost, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But out of those 100, maybe five of them had English subtitles. Only one of them had an English dub. I mean, I saw Turkish Star Wars for the first time without subtitles. Mm -hmm. Like, at that time, even that movie didn't have subtitles. So do you think, like, westerns that he made, like Ringo the Kid, have subtitles? Nope. They've essentially just been forgotten. And because Turkish cinema has no international roots, like... Italian or even German cinema, it's essentially been left in the dust, (laughs) which made this episode kind of hard because I thought there was going to be more movies to watch. I mean, we should talk about the actual actor, Arkin. What does he look like? Like when you see him on screen. He is a square jawed man. There's something a little bit Rutger Hauer-ish about him, I Mm -hmm. think. He's he's often white haired in a lot of his movies. (laughs) Mostly because they're late in his career because he started in 1963. He's been described as the Turkish Chuck Norris, which I think gives you some idea of what his affect is. He's, you know, a snarling guy, big strong man, very good at martial arts. Yes. (laughs) He started as a romantic lead, I understand. He did. And it's funny because 
because early on in his career, he likes to say that he got his training as a Russian acrobat because he joined the circus and he learned all these moves. And then when he finally came to movies and he did all those romances, like you said, after being a doctor. (laughs) And then when Turkish cinema started to kind of twist toward more action stuff after like the Bruce Lee films became very big, um, he started doing all his own action scenes. And oh boy, there were a lot of them. So I love this man. Having said that, I wouldn't say he quite has his tender hooks in me. (laughs) So I just contradicted myself. I love him because he's been in 300 of these Turkish movies and and he's one of their biggest stars. But you haven't even seen that many of them and I haven't seen any of them because they're just not available to us. I love the fact of this man. Yes. Uh, And I love, I mean, I didn't even know a month ago that the guy from Turkish Star Wars is the same guy who was in Turkish Rambo. (laughs) Or Turkish Death Wish. Who was also in uh, The Sword and the Claw Mm -hmm. and that all these guys were the same guy. So I'm I'm learning this now. We're going to talk about a lot of movies that are from like the late period of Turkish cinema. So there was a military coup in 1980 and essentially this impossible industry became penniless and the movies that you see from that period and they're the ones that are the most distributed are like in shambles most of them are like an hour long none of them make any sense and you know Turkish cinema for the longest time they only had one audio track so you couldn't have like multiple audio tracks it would be like music and if you had any sound effects you had to be playing the music and you do the sound effects over it that's right so when you watch Turkish Star Wars mm-hmm. it'll have the Raiders of the Lost Ark score yeah. but anytime anybody fires a laser the score stops and you hear the laser and then the score starts up again very disorienting so The Man Who Saved the World came out in 1982 that's Turkish Star Wars that- that's Turkish way. Star Wars, yeah. Uh, the original title, uh, Dunyayi Kurtaran Adam. Ah, thank you for taking that bullet, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it matters. And according to The Guardian, it had a $300,000 budget. Would you believe that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> what I do believe is that it was a massive hit, that it like broke box office records, and that the director was allowed to buy like the studio space that he rented out, bought himself a Mercedes. That is hilarious watching this movie. I mean, it's incredible to imagine because like... Here, those of us who know about Turkish Star Wars regard it as just this, like... Trashy. Very, very trashy, like, bottom of the barrel. And I say that with affection. But <laughs> yes. it's like, like, the fact that it is Turkish Star Wars sets it up for comparisons that it could not even hope to match. Well, a lot of the Star Wars stuff happens early on. Like, we were talking about footage being edited in, and it's like, the main character is in, I guess, a cockpit? Uh, you have to use your imagination. He's a, it's just, you just see his head, and, yeah. and being projected behind him are scenes from Star Wars. And not not like, oh, the cockpit footage from Star Wars. This is just scenes from Star Wars with edits and everything. Outer space stuff, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, do you want to try to explain the plot of this movie? Because they uh, crash land on a planet. Well, the the plots of these movies are always more complex and simpler, mm-hmm. th- like at the same time. So the story goes that Turkish Star Wars in its original edit was two and a half hours long. Oh my God. And to cut it down, the director just picked an hour and chopped it out. <laughs> I would not be shocked. Yeah. I, you know, I I could take out another 30 minutes right now. <laughs> yeah, you could. You wouldn't know the difference. So yeah, uh, Junate Arkan and another guy, they've been flying in their spaceships and they land on a planet sort of like Dagobah. And there's a villain who's, he's kind of like Darth Vader, but he looks a bit like Ming the Merciless as well. Yeah, and he also controls kind of really crummy looking Battlestar Galactica aliens. <laughs> yeah, so he is trying to take over the Earth, but the Earth has this very thick coating, like a, a shield that's covering it. And 
the Earth is the Death Star mm-hmm. in, in stock footage from Star Wars. That's the the outer layer of the Death Star is the shield. So he needs to find a way to to penetrate it, and you know our men are trying to stop him. And that's basically all you need for the plot. Yeah. But also the plot is very confusing and hard to follow <laughs> because it's just an onslaught of strange images. It's like the Holy Mountain. <laughs> so you'll suddenly see in a scene where uh, Janate Arkin is just hitting a rock with his bare hands, and then this I guess gave him the ability that he can kick a rock so powerfully that it'll explode and then he's fighting care bears and like ripping their heads off oh my god the violence of the movie is so graphic there's a scene where he like rips off one of their arms and starts using it as a sword <laughs> yeah. uh, my actual favorite scene in the movie is towards the very end when he kills the big bad by karate chopping him like in half yes and then the way that they sell it is they like black out half of the screen i guess in post yeah yeah they black it so you see one half of his face and then they black out the other side of the screen so you can see the other half of his face and using the power of your imagination those are his two halves i mean this is a movie that like not only do they have their own crummy monsters in it at one point he steps into a cantina of some sort so you see footage from star wars and we should point out because star wars was shot anamorphically on the 35 millimeter frame um it's squished and when you put it through the projector it stretches out but they didn't have the ability to do that and their film is full screen so all the star wars footage doesn't look right it's very emaciated (laughs) and like that scene he's looking around and you'll see like some rick baker creations which were famously very shitty because they were just masks that they redid and then they'll cut two footage that they shot which is just a guy in a paper devil mask (laughs) yeah i mean i find the movie very charming Uh, it's a little exhausting Mm -hmm. i would say that after about halfway through you sort of (laughs) yeah i mean aren't all these films super exhausting yeah yeah, yeah, (laughs) they're just assaults of of the senses and i would say that turkish star wars compared to some that we watch is even like a lesser pill (laughs) than uh some of the advanced uh motion picture experiences that uh junaid arkin took me through this week but before we get there another one of his films that is widely available and has been widely available for a long time is called the sword and the claw and it's known as that title recently but it was also released as lion man which i think is a better title it was released it's one of the only one of these movies that got sort of a grindhouse release in the Mm. 1970s and the cast all had like ridiculous american names that were attributed to them and if you open up the uh, agfa release that they put out on blu-ray they actually have the american poster and it says like starring and then like a chinese name who appeared in this which is like a fictional movie yeah they sell it as a kung fu movie Mm -hmm. um and you know it's a it's a pretty charming movie it's not one of my favorites no it's because it's almost too good yeah it's too good they're still shooting in the desert they're shooting castles and you know janae arkin is like throwing fists and stuff like that but it doesn't have that kind of crazy desperation that the films that were directed by Chatton Inash have, and that's the director of uh, Turkish Star Wars, Turkish First Blood, all like the crazy ones are all from the same man. Right. This one has an internal logic to it. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. It has an aesthetic that is sort of I love the aesthetic. It's very Renaissance fair. Well, it's a swashbuckler, so it's like a ripoff of like Errol Flynn movies. Yeah. And it uh, very falsely promises you Janae Arkin with uh, Tiger Claws, which only happens in the last five minutes. Disappointing. So yeah, he He's like the son of, mm. you know, a king and a queen or whatever. Yeah. It's raised by lions. lions. Yeah. It takes revenge. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, that old story. <laughs> yeah. 
It doesn't really matter what happens in it because, you know, it's fine. It feels like this is one of the hundreds of movies that he made in that mold. Yeah, and I have a feeling that this is one of the only ones to get released on this side of the Atlantic because it doesn't have a lot of stolen music in it. <laughs> it still has stolen music, has, stolen classical it, it, music. It has stolen classical music, but it doesn't have... Like, most of these Turkish movies will have the Godfather theme. Yes. Uh, a lot of them will have Raiders of the Lost Ark. A lot of them have the Enter the Dragon theme. And then, you know, uh, assorted other, you know, I think probably the Halloween theme shows up in them. So I watched a documentary on the Turkish film industry called Remake Remix Ripoff from 2014. I did too. It's and, very good. And they talk about that, like, they could not afford an orchestra. They could not afford even dollies. Like, they show how they would build their dollies. I've never seen a dolly built like this. It has no wheels. It's just, like, it's supposed to slide mm -hmm. on these tracks they build, and they put water on it to, for it to go. Mm -hmm. And that's just how they would do it. They'd have to deliver movies in four days because they were regional filmmakers. They had, like, six regions that they had to hit. They assumed they would put their films out there, they would play, and then they would just disappear. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> video was not, like... The the big thing on their mind. This was like disposable trash to go out to the masses. And that director that I mentioned who did Turkish Star Wars said that he directed like so many movies and he didn't even feel like he had made a real movie yet. Mm -hmm. He felt that like the resources weren't there and he just kept making it because he had to pay the bills. Well, what's amazing is how prolific this film industry was and how few people were actually participating in it. Mm -hmm. There were, what, 10 directors? Yeah, 10 directors and, and, and like, like one major film distribution hub. And even 10 may be a generous number. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, there were still some art house directors like the guy who made Dry Summer uh, in 63 was a bit of an art house mm -hmm. hit. In 1982, Yol would come out, which yeah. is like the big Turkish well, film. that's a notable film because so uh, the Turkish film industry sort of flowered after the Second World War. Flowered might be too heavy a word for yeah. it, but like they they produced a number of romantic and dramatic films inspired maybe a little bit by like British kitchen sink realism mm. or the Italian neorealism stuff that was sort of. I, I think piggybacking off certain trends in European art cinema. Still ripping things off, huh, Turkey? <laughs> well, as they say, how many how many stories are there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ten. Turkish Death yeah. Wish. And, and then, you know, in the 50s and 60s came a lot of movies with people dressed in Halloween costumes. Yeah, well, like, Peblum's are really big in Italy, so they kind of ripped that off. Mm -hmm. Like, swashbucklers. There's always an element of romance to these films. Mm -hmm. And they were very inspired by the serials more than, like, any other film industry like that, like Wham Bam kind of Flash Gordon kind of stuff really inspired them a lot. Uh, not usually in science fiction modes. Supposedly, I read one interview with the director where he was like, Turkish Star Wars was Turkey's first science fiction film. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. But like one of the most famous ripoff films is Dracula in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And like that's one that like started the wave and kind of defined Turkey as like the ripoff nation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we watched a few other films from um, Junaid Arkin and you know as a performer they always ask him to do the same stuff and the stuff that's available to us English speaking audiences he like grimaces he screams a lot he does a lot of floppy kung fu that you can laugh at but then if you look at it like real closely it's very dangerous and oh, he yeah. does all of his own stunts as well so we watched Turkish First Blood mm -hmm. where it's yeah, you know, pretty pretty much follows along similar lines of First Blood, although there the are zombies. zombies. <laughs> yes. The zombie scene is great because it comes early on and the zombies are just 
doughy bald guys in blue jeans and they're covered in fake blood there's zombies in turkish star wars as well that's right which, which makes me think like what was the big hit in turkey that inspired all of I these i think there are zombies in pretty much all of these movies <laughs> yeah. death warrior has zombies in yeah it. that's right turkish first blood when it comes to ripoff it's pretty close to the plot of first blood if the bad guys were all bikers so we didn't care about them being killed yeah yeah <laughs> and you know this is i think one of the prime kind of high energy turkish movies where you feel the director is like, all right, everything's a wide angle. The camera's always moving and go- going all over the place. If people get bored, we're just going to cut to the next scene. Don't got to explain how we got there. It doesn't matter. We're just there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, Janate Arkin in this movie does so many crazy stuff. At one point, he like falls off a cliff and you just see him like roll down it. Oh my God. These movies are just like so dangerous. I mean, he said uh, in an interview that I uh, saw with him that he like at one point crashed through a window on a motorcycle and it was a real glass window because they couldn't afford anything fake. And he, like, severed his hand. (laughs) One of the guys in the documentary we watched was talking about how there was this prop rifle. And the producer was like, you got to be really careful about that rifle. I spent so much money on it. It's really important. And so there was one point where he, like consciously did something like really dangerous to his body to save the rifle from, mm. from being broken and in the process he dislocated his shoulder Ugh, God. Like, what are you doing you're killing yourself for the prop well watching Turkish First Blood I don't think they had blanks in the guns because the way that they <laughs> shot you see him fire and then you'll see like something being hit with no one around it mm. which makes me think that it would probably be cheaper to get real guns and fire them at people than it would have to get blanks and then like pretend Something I like about these movies is that they take things that are very familiar and show them in through a strange lens. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not like an Andy Warhol picture of a soup can where the picture is cartoony but also very very technically skilled. It's like more like a Jean-Michel Basquiat picture of a soup can. <laughs> Even that's not really a great comparison because yeah. he was a great artist. But, well, it's, but kind it's like it, it's like a, a weird shoddy facsimile, but you go with it. It's kind of like a dream, right? Where you like wake mm. up and you're like, wait, what happened in that movie? I think this happened. Yeah. Or like it's what you think about as you're falling asleep and like different thoughts are kind of like running into each other. Well, yeah. Things are too fast. All of this intellectual property falls into this soup. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen Scene, there are these videos they're like automatically generated for small children oh i've seen them yeah 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 where it's just like peppa pig and spider-man and a couple of other you know copyright characters just like playing together and not doing anything and they're all pregnant oh yeah and then they get killed <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah because as they auto generate they like go down like the rabbit hole of getting more and more extreme yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know some of the turkish films feel like that end result of that kind of machine making these movies yeah. i mean we both watch Watch Death Warrior from 1984. Which I think if you're going to watch a Turkish action movie, this is probably the one to watch, even more than Turkish Star Wars. I saw this one in high school, and it just, like, blew my mind. I could not believe... No subtitles, again. Yeah, but, but you don't need them. No, because even if you have them, it just makes things more well, confusing. I watched it with a bad English subtitle track, like mm-hmm. a fan-made one where it was... It may as well not have had them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I got the gist of the plot, but again, it's a movie where the plot is quite simple, but it's impenetrable. So supposedly a lot of this footage is from a different movie okay. that Junaid Arkin made, which makes sense. Yes. But there's still new stuff in it as well. And this is the one that kind of rose to the top because the previous movie doesn't have English subtitles, so we can't watch it anyway. And I, I mean, what is the plot of this one? He's like a dirty, hairy type cop. Yeah. Arkin is the titular death warrior and it is his job to 
save Turkey from the plague of ninja zombies (laughs) who are are literally rising from the grave. Which the movie cuts to every two minutes to see them like practicing and doing their ninja stuff. Yeah. Why ninjas are in Turkey. (laughs) Yes. Never explained. Never explained, but they're taking over. And you would think a guy like Arkin, the the death warrior, would be sanctioned by the government. (laughs) Nope. But no, he's a loose cannon. They don't want anything to do with him. So he's a one-man army. And boy, is he a one-man army. Do you remember the scene where he's got a bow and arrow and he's and he's fire it's just a throwaway moment among many but yes. he's got a bow and arrow and he and he's like just fires like one after another like he's firing a gun at them <laughs> yes i mean this is a movie that from scene to scene you don't know where you are or what's going on like well, there's a scene with killer plants <laughs> yes never brought up again there are there's like a mummy monster yes yeah, there, there are, are mummies there uh there's that incredible motorcycle chase where arkan is like jumping from motorcycle to motorcycle uh but also car chases where the crashes are from different movies and some <laughs> of the wide shots are miniature toys yes. that are being pushed around and you know I've talked about before where it's been insulting to me that people would be like, uh, you know, Godzilla movies look like toys. I mean, these these look are like toys. toys. They are yeah. toys. Yeah. Just like crashing into each yeah. other. It's almost like a little boy like making a movie and being like, yeah. And it's a movie where just like none of the formalities are there. No, I mean, there's barely any plot. The cameraman, no matter what scene it is, it feels like someone's hunting him with a knife. He's like running around trying to catch oh, yeah, the, what's the, going the on. Editing is just. <laughs> totally disorienting and then when it ends the end is like when you think there's one more step and you get, it's <laughs> yeah, like, that's right what, i mean <laughs> as the movie plays uh arkin's like leather jacket seems to get smaller and smaller until it's like up to his breast and you're like what is going on i like the last shot by the way where he's fighting like horrifying a, a man on fire okay it's so, not actually a man yeah so the ninja warrior king explodes and you know you think it's over but oh no he comes back to life and what it looks like is special effects people like holding a flaming dummy on a big long stick and you see Arkin like has to kind of fight it but he's still terrified of the fire which is very real so he keeps like taking a step back and like kicking it and the dummy will swing back towards him (laughs) just it's real life faces of death footage there (laughs) and you know Death Warrior from 1984, that was pretty much like the end of kind of Turkish cinema as, you know, cult people know it. Yeah, as you said, the military junta took over in 1980 and it became very hard for the Turkish film industry at that time. Just simple things would uh, trigger censorship. So, for example, in the documentary, one of the directors is talking about how they shot a scene at a beach Mm -hmm. where there were some people who were sort of up to their ankles at a beach and and the government said, oh no, this is revealing a potential entry point for foreign (laughs) invaders. So we had to cut that. Like, movies would just be cut to the bone, basically. The director of that film, Yol, Mm -hmm. which won the Palme d'Or at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival, that was not sanctioned by the Turkish government. No, he directed it from prison. His assistant directed it from very detailed notes. Right. (laughs) And a lot of his earlier films after that one, the Palme d'Or, were just seized and destroyed. Mm -hmm. I think that, like, when you watch the Janet Arkin films, what's interesting about them are that they're from a kind of industry that was never able to move technically. They got started really late. Like you mentioned in the 60s when they finally, like, post-World War II, that was essentially, like, the beginning of a Turkish film industry. And it was so popular, and they had to kind of churn stuff out so quickly that they never got a chance to, like, all right, well, we can make this look more polished. What is film grammar? Yeah, exactly. Like, no one has, like, a mixer that has multiple audio tracks. Like, isn't that, like, one of the first things that you would have to get? 
and I mean, there are great filmmakers from Turkey, like Nuri Bilge Sel- mm-hmm. Selan, for instance. But as we learned in the documentary, a lot of Turkish film and TV production is still as rushed and hectic as it was in those days. We saw footage in the documentary of this strike of Turkish TV actors uh, and crew members, some of whom were like, God, we have to make... 40 minutes of television seven days a week or something like that yeah and even longer like sometimes it's two hours of television yeah, insane there was a cameraman who was talking about how god i i worked 24 hours once <laughs> i mean like any film industry is tough but like especially in turkey it's obviously like an audience that's not only hungry and the money men are like yeah it doesn't matter they'll like take it no matter what you give them <laughs> but, so you know, i'm fascinated by what you said about how turkish star wars was actually a gigantic hit in turkey mm-hmm. because I would have assumed that it was just like a weird freak curiosity. And the fact that it was a huge hit like is interesting to reckon with because people I- I'm sure the people of Turkey know no they do know they, 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 they do know, know it's it silly yeah. and that it's like you know goofy and that it's cheap and like when we first saw Turkish Star Wars I'm sure that we watched it with a certain amount of like so bad it's good yeah of course um, I remember watching Death War and being like oh, look you can see the shadow of the cameraman which you see a lot in the movie yeah <laughs> and I mean these movies are wildly entertaining mm-hmm. so they succeed on that level yes but also Clearly, there was something that people in Turkey were responding to, the fact that it's okay that it didn't look like the real Star Wars Mm -hmm. because it was us... It was our Star Wars. Well, they were able to, like, look at it and go, oh, it's kind of like the Adam West Batman. Like, we know it's a joke. Turkish film, like, it could work on that level. And, you know, I just think it's still a bummer that not more of it, like, crossed into any other English-speaking territories. I agree, but I would also say that I think a lot of these movies benefit from being kind of underground. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess. Like, sort of stumbling on Turkish Superman. Yeah, or like Turkish Star Trek. But I feel like those ones are the ones that everybody knows, and they've been the one that people have known for decades. There's, like, nothing else. Well, I was fascinated watching that documentary, just, just how much how much there is to discover. Yeah, like, I wanted I mean, to watch uh, Turkish Machine Gun Kelly, and it's not available with English there's, subtitles. There's a Turkish Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> yes! And, of course, we found out that during the military junta, there was an explosion in Turkish porn. Mm, point, a massive explosion. Like, like, porn was, like, pretty much 50% of the film industry for, for a time, even under this right-wing authoritarian rule. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's popular. It's pornography. Everybody loves it. So, you know, I hope that there's more movies that kind of escape from this history of cinema. But until then, I would recommend people go check out Death Warrior and Turkish First Blood. Do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, hello, Justin and Will. I was originally going to write just to tell you how much I love the Important Cinema Club. I really appreciate your enthusiasm in discussing movies, your camaraderie, and that your audio quality is above the standard of many film podcasts I've long since given up on. Wow, thanks. And also, You know what else we don't have a lot of? Our awkward silences. <laughs> That's true. Is it, does that happen a lot in podcasts? Oh, of course. Oh, I don't, I don't listen to those ones. Yeah. Any awkward silences on this podcast are edited out. That's right. <laughs> and the letter continues. I've also written this letter to say the Patreon subscription I recently signed up for is well worth the money and I recommend it to anyone who has not given it a try. Well, you said it. Yep. Your reaction to the final movie shown at the 
the 2018 Nitrate Film Festival is worth every penny. Wow. <laughs> but the main reason I am writing is to thank you for solving a film question of mine that I've had for decades and honestly never thought would be answered. My two vivid film memories aren't that unusual. Seeing the re-release of Disney's Peter Pan in a theater in 1982 and seeing Star Wars on a VHS tape in 1983 that my grandfather, who owned a satellite dish, recorded for me. But my third memory is a bit more off the beaten path. I I can recall sometime around 1985 watching an unusual scene from a movie with elements of martial arts and vampirism in which a man was spun around in the air by someone before throwing them to the ground, doing a split, and drinking their blood. I can't explain why, but this image stayed with me to the point where every few years I would do a cursory search of the Shaw Brothers catalog or type Kung Fu Vampire films into various search engines in a futile attempt to find out what I'd seen that had made such an imprint. Well... Uh, we're about to reveal he was searching the wrong thing because it wasn't credited as a vampire film. I've recently been listening to the Important Cinema Club series chronologically. Yes, even the Elaine May episode. What? I think the Elaine May episode is I, good. I said something <laughs> yeah, bad that's about right. it on Twitter, yeah. And I'd gotten to number 74 on the Criterion Collection, which for some reason I had not listened to since discovering the podcast a year ago. Then at 48 minutes, 46 seconds. Now, I have no memory of having this discussion. <laughs> I heard the words that put an end to the 35-year puzzle. When there was a discussion of a movie you had watched that was better than Equinox. Why would we have said that? Because we watched Equinox. <laughs> oh, did we? Podcast. And actually, there were a lot of movies that better, better than, than Equinox. Equinox. In which Will said, there was a moment where a guy literally spins another guy around. I stopped dead in my tracks upon hearing this and typed Kung Fu Zombie into Google ah. to find the movie you two were discussing was available on YouTube. An hour and six minutes in, I rewatched the same scene I saw at age seven. I was not sure had been real or a fever dream, and the mystery came to an end. I won't say I had the sleep <laughs> of the just that night, but the fact that the question has finally been put to rest, and I will no longer randomly think of this scene while I'm at work trying to concentrate on offshore wind turbines, I owe you two a very sincere thank you. What's funny about this is, he doesn't mention that I put it out on Blu-ray, which is maybe because he doesn't know if he's listening chronologically. Yeah, if, if you liked watching it on uh, <laughs> YouTube, on YouTube, <laughs> Uh, you'll definitely enjoy Justin's Gold Ninja video release of Kung Fu Zombie with a supporting feature, Kung Fu from Beyond the Grave. Yes, which are two films that star uh, the same guy, Billy Chong, and are two kind of supernatural-tinged versions of the movie. And I should point out that there are actually two versions of the movie on the Blu-ray, one that's like a full screen kind of cleaned up, and another one that's kind of widescreen, but more off a VHS copy. There you go. (laughs) A real criterion move right there. So I still remember when we watched Kung Fu Zombie. Did we watch it together? We did watch it together because I don't think we had high hopes for it or anything, Mm. but we ended up just being very delighted. Delighted by it. Clapping and cheering and just having a great time. Well, I'm glad this guy reminded me that we watched it together because I had completely forgotten that. Uh, The letter continues news i won't push my luck and ask for a long-awaited andre tarkovsky episode or my dream episode of a dual review of one of my favorite films david cronenberg's crash and one of my least favorite films paul haggis's crash so i'll just say thank you again for making such an entertaining show and i will be a fan for life all the best chris well uh what is there to say about crash the paul haggis (laughs) one that hasn't been said it's bad yeah real bad paul haggis canceled as well that's right i Uh, forgot forgot about that yeah Yeah. so many people have been canceled (laughs) everybody's bad thing about paul haggis is like the the ones who have been canceled to stick out in my memory yeah are people that you like are people that i liked before Mm. but but Paul Haggis, it's like, oh, he's bad. What? Oh, man, I got to throw my Deuce House uh, DVD collection in the garbage because he was the creator of that. That's right. 
Uh, do you have any memories from as a kid of like a movie scene that you saw that you can't pinpoint that film? Well, there's one that I really hope the listeners can help me with. Because oh, wow. I've been trying to find it for years in senior kindergarten. We watched this film, and I think they actually projected it on like sixteen millimeter mm. film because I'm I'm that old. <laughs> yes, that I was. I don't think there was ever that. a projector in the class I was at. But continue. The, the film was it was sort of like set at it, it's probably from like the seventies or eighties. It was set at the turn of the twentieth century, kind of a Ambersons like family, mm. and and they're sort of a wealthy family, and it's snowy, and they have a Christmas tree. And the movie is narrated by the Christmas tree. <laughs> and it's live action. Yes. And and the Christmas tree, you know, he's kind of like an observer to their lives as they have their lives and loves and heartaches and this and that. And then he you know, he's talking about how nice the family's treating him and how, how well everything is. But then he loses all his pine needles at the end and they throw him in the fire. <laughs> they throw the Holy tree shit. in the fire. <laughs> So now you can see why this movie sticks out in my memory. Okay. And and you see the family watching the tree burn. Is he screaming? Is he like, oh! So in my memory, he is. <laughs> and I don't know if... All right. I mean, you know you got to get on the line. This is a Paul Karoop question, the guy who runs Exploitation. Because if you saw it on 16mm, it's probably like an NFB film or something probably. like that. Probably. Yeah. Well, and the other clue is, I remember at the end, the youngest daughter of the family has one of the tree's pine cones, and she plants it, Okay. the tree will grow again. And yes. that's kind of bitter bittersweet ending. So, did anybody <laughs> else see this? Because I have spent so much time really? trying to find this. I've been up at night search- searching, like, okay, Christmas tree... Christmas tree, sentient anything, anything. Yeah, wow, I've never heard of that before. So and I, I hope I didn't just hallucinate because that's like a short film subject too, which makes it even harder. I feel like it was probably in the thirty-minute range. Okay, it could have been an hour. <laughs> you have to spend thirty minutes with this Christmas tree yeah. before he's brutally murdered. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, hopefully a listener can uh, figure that out. I really have no memories because I am like an elephant. I remember everything now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like when I was a kid. I didn't watch that many like crazy movies because my parents would not let me so i don't have that many memories other than stuff like the peanut butter solution which is just absolutely insane and it's like one of the craziest movies ever and it's canadian severin films is putting it out on blu-ray i never saw that movie as a kid which is strange because it seems that every canadian saw that as a kid Mm -hmm. and every canadian has fond memories of it listen i'm sure that you saw the log drivers waltz the animated film we were all legally forced to watch it i guess yeah i would love to know like the person in charge of the nfb that sent out all these vhs tapes to all these teachers who just (laughs) played them for thousands and thousands of kids yeah like why peanut butter solution why i don't understand i also remember seeing a pre-show at a movie you know maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. where it's just like clips from random shaw brothers movies <laughs> and it, and this may not have been a shaw brothers movie but it looked like that one of those sets that you see in a shaw brothers movie and there were like like kung fu guys who were like on roller skates and they were skating around and they had like sparklers <laughs> and there were flames and stuff and i and you know wacky neon lights a lot a lot of sparklers are you sure that it wasn't the um the uh, andrew lloyd weber uh, starlight, starlight express, express? <laughs> yes it, it had a little bit of that aesthetic to <laughs> yeah. it so you know based on that nothing clue if somebody can write in and tell me what that might have been not have actually been Shaw Brothers. It may have just been like something with those aesthetics. Was yeah. it a martial arts film? Or I think it was. I think and it, it was, was a pre-show. Okay, yeah. that's weird. Yeah. Alright, well hopefully someone can answer those questions. We're throwing them out in the blue and yeah, important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week 
we are looking back at the decade. We are doing our top 10 movies of the 2010s. Yep, that's right. Uh, I think I'll put them out there because I know you did. Yeah. So I was. Did you look at my list yet? I did look at your list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, put mine out and you can tell me if there's anything I really need to see. Okay. I don't think so. Have I seen everything on your list? Mm, Probably not, but I'll put it out there just so you can like not be like, well, I don't know what that is or something like that. Or, you know, me and Will, it's probably 80% the same. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) But there are some movies that like, I saw one of them on there. I was like, oh, I would have put that one on it too but i'm already sharing one with you you still can put it on. yeah i know i know it'll make the episode go by a little <laughs> that's right so that's what we're doing next week after this month of international cinema we're selling out we need more clicks so we're going to be talking about our top 10 of the decade and before i forget i actually um put out a new gold ninja video release and it is the pearl chain collection we talked about her a few episodes ago uh, she was a director, star, writer, probably choreographer as well, costume designer of like four feature films officially. And I put those four feature films on a two Blu-ray set as well as a bonus feature on each film and probably some hidden features somewhere on those discs as well. It's a it's a career in a box. Yeah, it's a career in a box. That's what I wanted to do. People don't know who she is, so I wanted to give them everything in one tidy package. Perfect for the person in your life who's like, you know, I love women filmmakers and I'm always looking for new stuff. I can guarantee you they have not seen these films. So you can pick them up at goldninjavideo.com. It's limited edition like everything that we do. And this is... Uh, two Blu-ray set, which I haven't done yet. So pick it up. And until next week, my name's Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, Justin and I made our annual trip to Horrorama this weekend, which is this annual horror convention, mm-hmm. a rather small scale intimate yes. horror convention that takes place in Toronto. I've talked about how much I love it because I don't feel the pressure of something like Fan Expo, which I haven't been to in almost a decade now, where it's like big and kind of anonymous and the stars are very far away and it costs a lot of money to get their autograph. Well, I mean, it still kind of costs a lot of money to get their autograph at Horrorama, but you can more freely ask some questions during Q&As. Well, the big guest this year was Lamberto Bava. <laughs> yes, that's right. The director of Demons. <laughs> yep. And we have no stories because we didn't go to his Q&A. We didn't go to his Q&A. Well, because he doesn't speak English, right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what I would ask him. And this is where I'm yeah. getting to, like, at a certain point with some of, like, you know, filmmaking figures and stuff like that, where I'm like, oh, wow, what if I met someone like Sam Raimi? What were the questions I could ask him? And I was like, well, I don't know. Wh- you know wh- everything. Yeah. N- I don't. Maybe I don't know everything, but it's like, what question would he be able to answer in a way that like no one has heard before? And I'd be like, whoa, I've never heard that before. Unless they, they went like completely off book because we're friends, which is not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, are there any filmmakers that like you wish would go to a convention so you could ask some questions? Yeah. If I ever met Clint Eastwood, I would ask that there was a character actor who was in a lot of your movies in the 70s named Mm -hmm. Gregory Walcott. Okay. What are your memories of Gregory? (laughs) Uh, Because Gregory Walcott starred in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Really? And, you know, he went on to have a very successful career as the guy who gets punched by Clint Eastwood in a a bunch of movies. And I I would like to hear... Did he start his own fan club? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, there's still time. Will, I was actually thinking about this recently, reading your top 10 list. When do you think your obsession with Clint Eastwood started? I actually think it probably started, like, big time after we did the episode. Really? Uh, Well, I mean, I've always been interested in Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. And I mean... Who hasn't been, but... I don't know. I just feel like kind of after there there was a period around there when he was making movies like Invictus where I kind of started to tune out Mm -hmm. of him. But now... 
now that he's making movies like the, the fifteen seventeen to Paris, I'm back in. So, uh, is your obsession with him because he was like kind of like the mainstream, everybody loves him guy, and he kind of like started to twist because he didn't yeah. become more like right wing because he was always right wing. Yeah, I mean, it's the fact that he's. I, I, you know, maybe it's a bit of a privilege to be able to find a right wing guy fascinating. Yes, uh, I mean, you find a lot of right wing people fascinating. But, but yeah, I mean, he is interesting that the fact that he's a conservative guy who is also capable of great empathy, mm. and so his movie is he. Because <laughs> if you read his biography, well, I mean, Sandra Lockett would be like great empathy, eh? I, I mean, through his art. Okay, I, yes. I cannot judge. Well, I can judge him as a person. It seems like he's guilty of a lot of sins. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> but. So what interests you is that, like, you can find the movies affecting when he is yeah. such a bad man. And I also think that he has a particular point of view in in his movies that you just don't get anywhere else. It's like he's... Not in this polished mainstream form, you mean. Well, he has a very particular kind of conservatism. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't like government bureaucracies. <laughs> like in The Mule, you know, yeah. it, that that's a movie where... You know, there are things about it that are almost progressive. It's Mm -hmm. like it's a movie that shows you sides of America you don't normally see in movies. And the villain of the mule is the war on drugs. (laughs) It's like even the Mexicans in the mule come across kind of okay. Yeah, they do, especially because they love this fucking Clint Eastwood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, so this is just, I guess, a little taste because I'm sure we'll touch upon this again when we watch, is it 1517 to Paris? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, because I have it. It's on my stack. I'm going to watch it. I promise you. Sure, and I hope you enjoy it. I mean, I hope I enjoy it as well because I don't think I have the same fascination with Clint Eastwood as you do or all the other film Twitter dudes do. But I think if you watch the 1570 to Paris, like at the end of it, you'll at least say, well, I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> you know what? I, I believe you. <laughs> and I wish I just, you know, I, after doing our Clint Eastwood episode, like Clint Eastwood less. You really? got fascinated by him. Interesting. And just how much of a monster he was. Yeah. And just like, it's all out there as well. Yeah. Because before that, as this guy who just goes out, he makes movies, does one take, he wants to get back by like six o'clock back home. I love that, and that he worked in so many genres. But when I read about him, and it's just like just mm. leaving a trail of bodies in his wake, that made me like like his movies a lot less. Interesting. Well, yeah. why why does it rub off on the movies? I think I don't know because I you know think he's probably not that great a person in yeah. real life I mean there's a lot of people whose uh, movies I love and I yeah. probably don't think that they're that great a person maybe because he's just out there more and maybe because a Clint Eastwood film is a Clint Eastwood film if you know what I mean like you stop being interested in stuff like Invictus because that didn't feel like a Clint Eastwood film that's, anymore yeah that's right but then when you make something like Gran Torino it's not only playing off iconography that he did before but it's also like just pure him well, I, at this point in his life I think even Clint Eastwood's worst movies become more interesting just by virtue of the fact that he was involved in them. No, it's, I agree. It's like he brings so much just as an icon. <laughs> but you still have not seen the Four Seasons movie, have you? Oh, the uh, Jersey Boys. Yeah, no, Jersey Boys. No, I haven't seen that Which one. is the one that like makes me want to see it just because it's like Clint Eastwood made this? Yeah, well now that I'm back in on Clint Eastwood, I think <laughs> yeah. I should check it out because yeah, something about his drab visual style. <laughs> you know it's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah. Um... Can you imagine if Clint Eastwood had just like dropped dead after Unforgiven? Do you think that when he passes away, people will look at him differently? Because I don't think they will. I think they will still remember him from like the Fistful of Dollars and all that other stuff. I think so. Well, I think Clint Eastwood's legacy is secure. Yeah. I don't think that unless he did something like really crazy, 
I don't think it's going to change. No, but I and I also think that some of his mystique, though, now comes mm. from the fact that he had that great comeback in the 2000s. It's like it, the fact that he's 89 years old yeah. and is still making movies. The chair, the chair, the chair, of yes. course. But the fact that he is, I think, I think nobody has been a bigger star for longer than him. Do you think there could be a late period like Clint Eastwood comes to like the radical left side where he's like, you know what? I've been wrong this entire time. No, I don't think you that don't will think ever so. Happen. No, you I know, think he's fine with Trump. Yeah, he's fine. He yeah. like the has he commented on Trump at all? Well, he, he hasn't endorsed Trump, but mm. you know he's he's said things like uh, both parties are kind of <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, that sort of thing. I think he's fine with Trump. Yeah, he's probably fine. 